Lovely. Well, our reading can be found in the Church Bibles on page 1208. So we're looking at Hebrews chapter 10 and uh, verses 19 to 25. So that's 1208, Hebrews 10, verse 19 is where we'll start. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. Well, um, when you had that uh, passage read to us by Janet, you probably clocked up five letters. You know, it's the kind of Christian end, well, he's getting towards the end of his letter, whoever it was who wrote the book of Hebrews. And uh, it's kind of like a kind of Christian, I can just picture, it's a kind of Christian version of Henry the, the well, Lawrence Olivier playing King Henry V in Shakespeare's play, and he's urging the troops once more into the breach, dear friends. Well, this Christian writer is saying, let us do this, that, and the other. He's spurring them on, and we see quite a collection of them. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that uh, we profess. Consider how to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Don't give up meeting together. Encourage one another. And so how are we able to draw near with God? And this passage shows us the means, how it's possible for us to draw near with God. It's not an automatic right. We're not born able to do that. But also the disposition, the attitude that we should have. And it's these first three verses, 19 to 21, that they hold the answer. Um, but they're not actually accessible to us. We don't understand. We can't do the let us unless we understand the basis on which we're able to draw near to God. And I'm afraid we have to go to a little bit of the Old Testament stuff in order to make sense of it. So we go to the tabernacle. That's the kind of tented holy place that kind of um, was instituted in the days when the people of God were on their migration from Egypt, where they'd been liberated, before they arrived in the promised land, the land of Canaan. And God had appeared to their leader Moses. Um, this is just another picture um, of this, this life-size replica of the tabernacle, which is um, somewhere in the Sinai Desert, I think, today, just north of Elat. That's a, it's a tourist attraction, but it's a good uh, visual aid. But at uh, Mount Sinai, which is today called 
uh, Jebel Musa as the, the monastery of St. Catherine, um, where some of the kind of oldest uh, copies of the Bible, dating from sort of uh, 200 AD, you know, they were found there, stuck in the archives. And uh, there's been this Christian presence there very early on, and this is the mountain, Jebel Musa, which is um, thought to be Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God gave, uh, on two tablets, the Ten Commandments. And uh, they come, well, they came to be housed in uh, two small... Uh, uh, these are the tablets. Again, this is just a model, um, stylized model. And they are housed in this little box. And this is what the box is carried on and that's called the Ark of the Covenant. That is the lid of the box, and they are stylized cherubim. So I'll just explain. The lid of the box was of pure gold. It was the place on earth where the presence of the Holy God was. It was God's throne of judgment, because his standard of judgment, the Ten Commandments, were there. And if anyone were to come before the presence of God, their life would be instantly compared to these Ten Commandments, and they would have been judged, and they would have inevitably fallen short, and the punishment would be death, exclusion from God forever. That happened to a few folk in Old Testament times. But once a year, um, a high priest was able, on the basis of, first of all, slaughtering uh, an animal sacrifice and then taking its blood and sprinkling it on the lid of the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, able, on behalf of the people, to gain access to the presence of God on earth, symbolised in the Ark of the Covenant, where the Ten Commandments were. And uh, those stylized cherubim, cherubim, you might remember, appear in the days of the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve had rebelled against God and sinned, they were expelled from the Garden. They were expelled from the presence of God. And the cherubim, they guarded the entrance with their swords, to the garden. In other words, there was no way back for Adam and Eve based on Adam and Eve's ability to get through to the garden. They were expelled, excluded from the presence of God. Their sin made them contaminated. Or if you, instead of using kind of ritual or symbolic or these kind of ceremonial kind of terms, you think in terms of uh, right and wrong and of justice, they were people who were unrighteous. They were guilty before God. And here, though, they are looking down. You can just about depict. Uh, nobody knows what cherubim look like, by the way, so any kind of model of the Ark of the Covenant will have whatever the, the artist kind of decides to do. But basically, they do have wings. I think that's kind of clear. And anyway, you can see that's a face, and these are the wings. And it's, 
instead of looking to kind of bar access, they're looking down onto the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. They're looking down at basically admiring the blood that was sprinkled there on this mercy seat. Elsewhere in the courtyard of the tabernacle, you'll see there's a big kind of altar burning, and there there is actually a big wash basin before you get into the, the two separate sections of the tabernacle. And the altar of sacrifice here, that is where having slaughtered the animal and the blood taken to be sprinkled, the blood represents life, and um, God sees it as being a substitute for the human being's life. And there on the altar, the, uh, the rest of the animal is uh, consumed by fire, and it wafts up to God, and God is thought to be pleased by the fact that a substitute has taken the place of a human being. And then there's this uh, wash basin, Oh, so that's the bronze altar, that's the wash basin. And the priests, who would otherwise be thought of as being contaminated, because they are now covered by the blood of the substitute, they then wash themselves clean, and they are no longer contaminated, and the high, they can go into the, the, the holy place, and the high priest can enter the most holy place once a year. So uh, when uh, the priests went in, because on the basis they gained access into the holy place, they were able to uh, put incense on this altar and it would waft up, symbolizing that their prayers were getting through to God. They had gained access to him by the merits of the, the substitute. And once a year, the high priest was able to get right inside. This is the first section, this is the, this is the holy place, and beyond this would be the most holy place and uh, they were able to um, get through that's the kind of incense bit and um, they would uh, be able to go there so just to kind of um, give you a kind of layout you know we've seen the altar the laver the holy place the most holy place and then in the uh, the holy place you have the altar of incense and in the most holy place you have the ark of the covenant that's the kind of layout. Now what we see is, oh, if you went to Jerusalem today, this is what you'd see. You'd see the uh, Dome of the Rock, the mosque there. You'd see the Al-Aqsa Mosque there. This is the Temple Mount. If you were to go there in the days of Jesus, this particular site would have been occupied by the temple built by Herod. And if you go there today, um, you would see this section of the wall there. That's what they call the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. That's the part of the, the Temple Mount that uh, Jews can get to. They don't go on there in case they happen to wander across uh, where Abraham, I think, was going to sacrifice Isaac. Um, so they don't go there. But some of this is all still here, including this arch there. Um, so what all that is, rather rushed through, is um, a case of earthly pictures that God took a long time trying to communicate to us spiritual heavenly realities. So what we have is we have that Jesus Christ has been sacrificed 
of his blood has been sprinkled by himself. He is also the high priest as well as the sacrifice. And that's placed before God the Father in heaven on his judgment seat. His life, the life of Jesus, did match up to the Ten Commandments. And God accepts his death as a perfect substitute. He takes the place of sinners. So men and women, Jews and Gentiles, on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, have now been granted access to God. You may remember that when Jesus died, the, temp the, the curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the place where the high priest just went once a year, that that was split in two from top to bottom indicating that Christ's death gained us access to God. Fantastic symbolism. But it's reality. It, they, those, those things happened, and that's what they mean. So it's now access to God is now open for all who come covered by the sacrifice of Christ. So these opening verses of uh, this passage that we're looking at this evening tell us the basis on which we can do those, all those other let us do this, that and the other. They tell us how it's possible that God is able through the death of Christ in our place to forgive us our sins because it's through his substitution for us that God's justice can be satisfied and that we, the guilty, can be declared innocent. So on the basis of that, we can, we can go with um, a certain degree of boldness. We can go with confidence. We can go right through all that tabernacle imagery. We can go right through to the most holy place. We can stand in the presence of God we can be compared to the standards of the Old Testament. And although naturally we would expect rightly to be found guilty, we are not destroyed because God looks at us through the life of his son, Jesus Christ, who has died for us, who has satisfied God's justice so that we can be declared innocent. God accepts me because I come covered in the blood of Christ, so that I don't have to shed mine. So we not only come with confidence, um, we can come, it's described as a new and a living way. It's a new way because it was previously not available. It's a living way because although Christ died, he rose from the dead and he's alive now and he can ensure that this method of access works. He is the great high priest. He's offered the sacrifice to God the Father and sins have been atoned for. And that's the basis of these five exhortations that follow. So how are we to approach God? Are we to be timid or fearful? What is God looking for? Does he want us to go through ritual? Is it just a question of church attendance? Or is he looking for something else? So how do we draw near 
uh, to God in the sense of attitude. We've seen the basis on which God is able to grant us access. What is the attitude that the writer to the Hebrews urges us to have? He says, first of all, a sincere heart. We are to be genuine, wholehearted, not just going through the motions. C.S. Lewis said, prayer is more than just reciting, otherwise a collection of properly trained parrots could do it. It's very easy in this relationship with God to allow it to degenerate into some kind of mechanistic ritual. It's almost a default thing that we all are likely to do. It's easy for us to see it if it's in a totally different religious context, which is culturally fairly alien to us. So if we see, for example, Eastern Orthodox services or certain very um, ornate Roman Catholic services or even high Anglican services, we can easily sort of start to think to ourselves, is this some kind of pantomime? Are they just going through the motions? It seems endless. But, you know, we can also do it in our particular style. We can quite easily just go through the motions. We do the external, we're not connected internally. And that shouldn't be like that. We must engage our heart and mind and will completely. We should come with full assurance, with boldness. If we grasp what Christ has done to gain us access to God, and if we're trusting him for that, there is no reason for timidity or tentativeness. We can have full assurance. In the Old Testament, people were told to keep their distance from God. But in the New Testament, we're told to draw near to God. Cleanse from a guilty conscience, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, he writes. Rebellious acts lead to a guilty conscience. You don't need me to tell you that. If you do do something which you then quickly or subsequently realise is wrong, you will, your conscience will prick you. You may well feel uneasy if you have a sensitive conscience. And that relief is, uh, there's only relief for that when you confess your sins and make kind of restitution if possible. So without Christ we are left with a guilty conscience. And all we can do is try and deny it by suppressing it, or we can suppress it, or we can repress it. We, we can't get rid of it. What's done can't be undone, except, of course, by Jesus Christ. His death, applied to our sins, results in a cleansed conscience. We can have peace with God. We don't have to go around with a kind of heavy rucksack across the top of our shoulders, which is a guilty conscience. It is a great burden. Next we see washed with pure water. Again, a reference to the, the tabernacle or subsequently the later sort of temple. They had the tabernacle, the tented kind of holy place when they wandered around the desert. But once they settled, Solomon first built a small temple and then Herod later on built a whacking great temple. I mean, the size of the, for example, the Churchill Plaza would be its height. And again, this is here, we have this reference, not to the altar of sacrifice, but to this great big wash basin. 
used for the ritual washing. Appropriating the sacrifice of Christ for our sins, which are symbolised in water baptism, means that we're clean. We are no longer contaminated. So being cleaned up, we can approach a clean God. We won't risk polluting him, so he would have to otherwise eradicate us. Let us hold unswervingly to the promised hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. In the 18th century, navigation by ship was pretty difficult because nobody could devise um, an accurate time machine, you know, a clock, that was able to withstand all the rough seas. And so what the government did was they passed an Act of Parliament which offered a pretty substantial reward for anybody who could solve the problem. And a self-taught carpenter called Harrison devoted 40 years of his life to the problem and he eventually won the prize. That's what he'd hoped for, a promise decreed by Parliament, the highest authority in the land. And he unswervedly held on to that hope. And it was realised. Well, our hope is in heaven. We say or we profess that the death of Jesus Christ gets us access to heaven. So we have to hold on to that hope in the face of all that life throws up. Fortunately, he promises to ensure we get there. We're not... Um, left alone. We have his resources to draw upon, but of course we have to cooperate with those resources. Spur one another on to uh, love and good deeds. The word spur means to incite, and it can be used negatively, as in incite a riot, as some of the opponents of the Apostle Paul did, or it can be used in a positive sense, like it is here. Now, you can't force anybody to love you. Ovid, the Greek writer, was one of the first to note that as a young man, he discovered what many men subsequently discover from experience, that those who chase me, I flee from, and those I chase flee from me. But if you can't force anyone to love you, you can inspire them to, by your own good, loving heart. Expressed in good deeds, you show others possibilities for Christian expression. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. If you talk to some of the really old people, not just the old people, but the really old people, they'll tell you that they perhaps, when they were young children, they used to go to church three times on a Sunday. They'd go in the morning, they'd be packed off to Sunday school in the afternoon, give their parents a break, and they'd be taken again in the evening. Some of you come twice on a Sunday. 
Other people now with the house scoots will come during the week on a Wednesday to a small group and they come to a larger gathering on a Sunday. And it's important that we do because we need mutual encouragement each week. The Christian community is formed of two groups. One we can see, the church militant here on earth and the church triumphant in heaven. And on that day, at the end of time, those two communities are united together to be with Christ, his community forever. And not only do we not like being alone, we rather like community, but God is in the process of gathering a new community together that will last forever. He is the Father, he's looking around the world and he's gathering up spiritual orphans and he's adopting them into his family. A family that is human, but it shares in the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the positive. But negatively, it's very hard to draw near to God, to hold unswervingly to the hope, and to spur one another on to love and good deeds, if we're not in the habit of meeting to do so. And it is all about habit. From observation, I would think there are two categories of people who, uh, who belong to any Christian church. There are those who are in the habit of meeting together. It's their kind of default thing to do on a Sunday, for example. And the, other, and the others, they may be a minority for whom it is an option rather than a habit. And you can see it because on Sundays our numbers will vary quite significantly from one week to another. And it's quite easy to explain that. Some people are missing because they're sick. Others because you know, they're away visiting relatives for the weekend. For others it may be work. The nature of their work might be that they have very long shifts. And although we have services on sometimes at 8 o'clock in the morning and 6.30 in the evening, that still isn't quite an, you know, a range of times to enable them to, uh, to get here. For others, they might be away on holiday. But once you've gone through the list of obviously valid reasons, there still leaves a few other, perhaps less legitimate reasons, such as, you know, the party went on a rather a bit too late on the Saturday night and you just think, oh, I can't get up. But you wouldn't think like that if it was Monday, would you, and you had to go to work. Or it might be that there's some other leisure activity to do instead of meeting with you know, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you opt to do that. I learnt this the hard way. I became a Christian through Crusaders, what's called Urban Saints today, uh, when I was 12. And it used to meet on a, on a Sunday afternoon. When I was 14, I started playing Sunday afternoon league football for a team called Rough Common, which summed up our character as well as our uh, way of playing, really. And it was a very successful team. Um, but soon after I started playing, I broke my arm. No more football back to Crusaders. And then they changed Crusaders to Sunday morning, so that was okay. I could go and play football on Sunday afternoon, no problem. But, you know, 
I'd taken a fancy to learning judo. And the dojo, which is the place where you go and do your judo, was on on a Sunday morning. So off I went to do judo and not to go to Crusaders. On the third week, because the way you sort of learn is the best person is on the mat and he takes every all comers one after another. And as you go to him to kind of do your throw, he is better than you and he will throw you. But on this occasion, he trapped my arm. So instead of me being kind of launched over his shoulder and being able to roll out, I went down like a pile driver and bust my collarbone, which is considerably more painful than breaking your arm. Although I've never been in labour, I have watched it. I can just say that uh, a busted collarbone, I suspect, is equally painful <laughs> and lasts longer. <coughs> That's a brave statement to make, isn't it? But um, any woman who has had a baby and broken her collarbone is probably the only person who can correct me. So you see, I'd learnt the hard way. God knew that um, I was at risk of s swerving off from the hope that I had set before me and that um, I wasn't going to be getting the encouragement that I needed if I basically did other things than meeting with other Christian believers. Now the issue is not that you shouldn't play sport on Sunday. There's nothing wrong with that but play in the morning so that you can come in the evening or play in the afternoon and you've got the option of coming in the morning or the evening. The issue is an issue that if we play uh, sport or if we go country house visiting or if we go to the seaside instead of meeting with other believers, that's the important thing. Now, once or twice won't make a great difference to the progress in your Christian life. But once started, it can easily kind of default into a habit and you become less and less regular. So instead of, of meeting together, being a good Sunday habit, it becomes a possible Sunday option. You see, one of the few ways of indicating what are our priorities in life, what are the most important things, is how we spend our time. The other is how we use our money. So, I would advocate to you, be in Christian fellowship each week, which is usually a Sunday. We all need the encouragement. We need to spur one another on. All the more as the uh, day approaches. We don't know when that day is going to be, but we know it's sooner than it was last week. That day, of course, is the day of judgment, the day when our eternal destinies are pronounced, whether it's eternal life or eternal death whether it's heaven or whether it's hell, whether it's inclusion with God or exclusion from God. When we're divided between the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the weeds, 
but actually our destiny is determined now by our relationship with God. Is it close or is it distant? By holding on to the hope we profess, is it unswervingly or is it terribly wobbly? And the profession is seen to be genuine by the love we express, by the encouragement that we give, through the good deeds that we do, and by meeting together. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're not meant to go through this life solo, but you have gathered us spiritual orphans and adopted us into your family. And we're to spur one another on, we're to encourage one another, that we'll provide good examples to aspire to. And we pray that we might not be as foolish as I was in my teenage years. Amen.